Okay, so boom. You finally realize the power of emails and owning your own data. So you create a newsletter and get a landing page fired up. You send out your first email and bloop, it's in the promotions folder. Unless you're an e-commerce company, I'm sorry to tell you, but the promotion folder is not going to help you. This is why you should get ConvertKit. ConvertKit specializes in keeping your email in the primary folder so you can increase your open rates and communicate with your audience. They also have beautifully designed landing pages and squeeze pages for you to capture more emails. I personally love the fact that they have good support. Support for me is everything. If I have a problem, I need to know I can get someone on the line or have a video that answers all of my questions. Hustlers don't give up. They say, yo, let me figure this out. I figured out with ConvertKit. And let's start the show. Every negative is a positive. The bad things that happen to me, I somehow make them good. That means you can't do anything to hurt me. It's a simple one. It's a simple one. I'm feeling you know it. I'm feeling it. You feeling it? One? It's, uh, I'm feeling. It's, it's hitting. Like... It's hitting. It's you know. It's like uh, you know. It's like the PlayStation load bar back in the day. <laughs> it's like you know where you p- turn on PlayStation. It's like, and then you see the loading thing. Yeah, that yeah, was loading, and it yeah. just stopped at like ninety. Oh my goodness! It, it just did not slap. That. I load that. And then you oh take out goodness. the disc, then you rub it on your shirt. It's from static. Then you put it up. I used to do mm-hmm. that with Tiger Woods, bro. I used to love playing Tiger Woods. That was your PlayStation game? Like Tiger Woods? Bro, that's how I fell in love with golf. Oh, mine was Tony yeah. Hawk Pro Skater for sure. Oh, my God. Your Crash Bandicoot. Uh-huh. Crash Bandicoot. What you know about one. that? Crash Bandicoot. What's another one, man? NBA Street Volume 2. Yeah, that was a big one. That was a big Off one. Remember easy. when they had a hip-hop game? Um, where it was like DMX and like not DMX, it was like like they had like a hip hop like 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 street ball street brawl video game, and they had they had like Joe Budden in it. They had DMX. They had like pump pump it up. Like, yeah, it like sure. I remember I remember I heard Joe Budden's tracks in one of those games, man. But Word. yo, I got a funny story to tell you. So it's fuck speaking about PlayStation. Mm-hmm. Back when I was living in Nairobi, bro. I wanted a PlayStation so, so bad. Like, mm. my desire for a PlayStation was just unreal. So my cousin um, had gotten a PlayStation from my uncle, Uncle Willie. You know, rest in, rest in peace, Uncle Willie. And he moved on with my cousin, Emmanuel. So I went to their house, and I used to go every day to school telling kids at a PlayStation. Like, legit, you know, you know how I talk about, like, you have to, like, lie and it's gonna like become a reality. Start believing it. So I lied so much. I believed I had a PlayStation. So I go to my my cousin Emmanuel. You know, my uncle Ken was, you know, my cousin Brian's um, godfather. So they're living together. So I stole some of his games. You know, when we went for a family gathering, so I can show them off at school to show people like, yo, I had a I have a PlayStation. So bro, I I did the most to show I had a PlayStation, bro. And then when I finally got it, when I moved to Canada, it was my first ever Christmas present in Canada. My dad surprised me and I lost my shit, bro. That's when I got NBA Street Volume 2 and he got me like NHL 04. Mm-hmm. That's how I started out, bro. So five years in the making to get a PlayStation, man. That's incredible. That's incredible, yeah. bro. Oh, man. Yo, we didn't even introduce the pod, man. Hold on, bro. hold up. Hello and welcome to the Hustle Over Everything podcast. This is the podcast where you receive stories tips and strategies from entrepreneurs who've done it to grow your business and take yourself to the next level as a person 
I'm Alex, aka Lupe Successful. And I'm Oino Sende, aka Hustle Muscle. You feel me? And today, yes. yo, yo, the brand has legs, eh? The brand has legs, bro. The brand is legging. You feel me? We starting to make moves, up. starting to walk. Yeah. All right, today on the podcast, man, we have my guy, Mark LaFleur. He's the CEO of True Local. True Local is a company that connects customers to meat farmers. They make that process a lot more clean. They specialize in delivering quality meat products directly to the consumer. It's a beautiful business. It was ranked number 14 out of 400 in top Canadian companies by the Globe and Mail. Uh, he's also received an investment from Michelle Romano from Dragon's Den or Shark Tank Shark Tank for our American audience. Um, so it's actually going to be an amazing podcast, man. So this yeah. y'all, y'all got to tune in, have the notepad ready. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? So it's going to be a good one. Oh, what do you think of it, bro? Man, Lafleur, you know, I love like I love having that and Lafleur. Like it just adds some 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 swag to it. A lot. It sounds like a like a Travis Scott like yeah, Laflame, Lafleur, Lafleur. I think it's like j- the jacuzzi. What's his name? Oh, jazz Cardi's that, thing, right? J- jazz Lef- or Jacuzzi Lafleur or something like that. Jacuzzi Lafleur. Yeah, it has Word. like some 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 swag to it, some some no. bossness to it. Mr. Lafleur, you know, so you know, we got a man like Mr. Lafleur on the podcast, Mark. Um, bro, amazing story, man. You know, um, true red entrepreneur, legit hustle muscle. This guy's got it. He's been lifting his hustle muscle, pumping it up, working every muscle of his hustle, and doing the grind. <laughs> Where you use hey. hustle muscle, bro? Yeah. <laughs> Yo, bro, the way hustle muscle too is hilarious, bro. Hustle muscle, man. I gotta give I gotta give a shout out to my manager Mots from Good Life when I used to do sales at Good Life, bro. Because I used to be grinding out the leads, bro. Mm-hmm. So he's like, "Yo, Mister Hustle Muscle," and it just stuck, and I loved it. So gotcha, that's how gotcha. we're here, bro. But man, Mark, um, you know, I love the way he spoke about his business, his strategy, how he grew it, why he loves meat, the value chain of getting the meat to the customer how they, they do the procurement, the logistics, the marketing, and expanding over Canada. I think um, a lot of people would who want to build like a, a, a D2C brand, you know, will really get a lot of value out of this. And um, he's got an investor in Michelle Romano. You know, she owns ClearBank. She's an investor in Shark uh, Dragon's Den and a, and a big Canadian entrepreneur, you know, one of like successful Canadian entrepreneurs. Also, she's a woman too. So, you know, big ups to her, you know, not a lot of women entrepreneurs are out here doing it but she's like one of the the leading the leading ones in in the not only investor but also as an entrepreneur as well so it's really inspirational most definitely michelle if you're listening you got to get you on the podcast you got to come on got to come on yo you know come talk about your hustle like you're you're actually a hustler too so we want to hear your story how you did it and uh get inspired and give our audience give, give our audience some game most definitely all right, man. So how are you doing overall, though, bro? I know you got the folks over, no? The folks are over. They came through. They checked out the crib, uh, you know, made a meal. And um, yeah, bro, my cousin is here right now in the morning. My cousin Carlton, Kalito Papa, you know, he's over there making some <laughs> eggs, some coffee. Okay. And uh, we're going to tune in and watch some Premier League action. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, chill out, bro. 
Yeah, yeah. For How me, about I'm, about you, to, man? I'm about to get my haircut. That's why I got the do rag guy. You know what I'm saying? I got the waves cooking, you know. Um, mm-hmm. so I can't wait to get like, this haircut and uh have the the waves feeling like you know when you, uh, you hop out the haircut uh, off, off a barber chair and you feel like the you, fresh you, cut confidence, bro. Fresh cut confidence, man. So I'm anticipating that. I'm excited for that. Um and I'm working hard on uh, creating more content for us. Um, you know, we're rolling out the sticker marketing soon. So mm-hmm. I'm excited for all that, man. Um, other Yo, than that, back up? to your haircut though. What's do up? you, I don't know if I've ever asked you this, but do you take a, a extra longer route back home after you get a cut? No, <laughs> you do that. You take a extra route after a haircut. So this is what I used to do. Right. So, um, when Lots Onyx, when Onyx bar was still on young street, I used yeah. to, you know, I mean, home is just nearby, just straight down Dundas up west but i used to go to the mall first because the eaton center is right there so i'm just like boom let me just go walk around the eaton center show off the cut because bro take it in you just gotta cut why are you going straight home you gotta show it off you know you don't know who's watching you don't know if like you'll find like a pen girl just walking around and just like she sees your face like oh like who's that that's a fact you do okay there's definitely a confidence and you're right you know you you are at a pinnacle of confidence after haircut it doesn't make sense to just go straight home after that you know because it's bro like it's at the peak 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 of its freshness right there yeah, yeah, so yeah. why like and then the next two days it's gonna grow back in and then it's just like ah, oh, like you know but once it's fresh fresh like you gotta enjoy that moment you gotta savor it that's a fact. That's the most. That's the most definite fact. Mm-hmm. All right, uh, that's true. With that said, though, let's hop into the business of the week. Let's do it up, man. What you got cooked up? All right. So right now it's uh, a top of November. Uh, literally, uh, it's still October actually, and um, we are getting ready to hop into Black Friday. If you have a business that's in e-commerce, that's in um, even lead gen all the times could, could leverage Black Friday as well if they have a specific package that's relevant for Black Friday and Cyber Monday is coming up as well. And this is gonna, probably going to be the biggest Black Friday and Cyber Monday we've ever had just because of the nature of the situation with, uh, you know, the pandemic. So what can people do to try and prepare themselves um, for the uh, holiday season, essentially? I came up with five things, um, listening to different people who have been reporting um, on what they're doing for Black Friday. So we're going to try to keep this one in e-commerce. A few things that I want to focus on is the purchase process. This is the time where you probably have the highest amount of traffic in your store. So things that you can do to make sure you're getting that money, making them sales. One is image reviews. You know, when people come to your website uh, and they're kind of indecisive about buying, image reviews can be one of the strongest things you add to your platform to convince somebody to make that sale. Um, if you're on Shopify, there's specific apps that you can use to have images. One of the most popular ones is Enorm, and this is not sponsored, by the way. Um, Enorm apps, um, they do have a seven-day trial. It is a paid app, but it can... Um, pay itself back in gold um just because of the difference one person who uses it really well is uh the fresh heritage folks shout out to gamal codner um he has i I've went to his uh page basically they sell beard oil and uh beard care products 
And one thing that they have really well is am- is amazing reviews. They one not only do they have picture reviews, but they have like a verified sticker next to it, so you know that's actually a verified review. They have um, a ton of pictures under each product to make sure that this communicated how how well the product works. You know, so that's one thing that you can do and, and quickly add to your to your uh, product page to get that sale. Next is multiple options for payments. A lot of people sleep on this, and I don't know why. You know, um, if you are on Shopify, make sure that you're using Apple Pay, PayPal, Amazon Pay. Amazon Pay is a big one. Everyone's on Amazon right now, everybody. So why not have Amazon Pay? Um, even if they don't use it, the fact that you take it can make someone feel more comfortable knowing that um, you're on the cusp of uh, the best uh, payment platforms. You know, so... It's one thing to make sure you add into your lexicon when you are um, adding payment methods to your page. So next is retargeting. So just a quick quick mid recap is image reviews, uh, number one. Number two, multiple options for payment. And number three now is going to be retargeting. Retargeting is going to be a, a method of getting people back to the page to close that sale. Two options that I would suggest for retargeting. One, using an email list um, of people who've already bought. And the second is targeting people who have hit the add to cart page, trying to get them through to that purchase. And the third option is people who've already bought. Sometimes um, they might not have the right email connected to their Facebook. So um, it might not be the the easiest method to get in touch with them. But if you uh, retarget people who've hit the purchase page, the thank you page, then you know that they've already bought and you can retarget them to buy more. The, the easiest person to sell to is someone who's already bought and is a happy customer. So why not sell more, more to them? Moving right along, uh, I want to talk about, on the pivot now from actual purchases to um, driving more traffic. One thing I would suggest is, um, of course, let's like with retargeting, is looking at your email sequence and seeing how you can improve that. Having both more images and emails with less images because what you need to focus on is that a lot of times when you have images in your emails it'll shift it to the promotions folder right and then you're 100 percent in the promotions folder and then whenever someone's coming to you it's more of all right i'm in the buying process but leading up to black friday and cyber monday you want to be delivering value you want to be talking to them you want to be engaging with them and one way you can do that is by having emails with less photos and more copy focused on value because that will end up, there's a higher chance. I don't want to say it's a, it's a fact that it'll end up, but it's a higher chance it'll end up in your primary folder. And the primary folder is gold. That's where the higher conversion rates are for email. And that's where a lot of people will read it and come in for, to get that value before the purchase. You know, it's not just about asking for the right hook on Cyber Monday, on Black Friday, but you need to be leading up to that point as well. So ways you can do that is think about what value you have, what value the audience wants, and what's in that middle. You can create a Venn diagram. I always talk about the Venn diagram in my consultations um, of what value you have, what value the audience wants, and what's in the middle. So um, that kind of wraps up for email sequence and do the same thing on social media. Um, have a rollout 
leading up to Cyber Monday, we're talking about your products and getting a lot more value um, with the anticipation of Cyber Monday and Black Friday. So hopefully that helps, guys. Let me know what you think. DM us on Instagram and give us your feedback at 24-7 Hustler. Are you currently doing these things? What are you doing to increase sales for Cyber Monday? I want to know. Please let me know. And boom. Bang, 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 bro. Cyber Monday is coming up, guys. You know what it is. Time to get your money up. Trying to get the bag up. Get the duffel bag, not the string bag, you know? <clears throat> Facts. So, guys, you know what time it is. It's Mr. Hustle Muscle on the mic, ready to give you the Hustle Nation tip of the week. And the tip of the week this week, guys, is the habit of going the extra mile, right? Um, one of the things that I've learned over the years of reading is, and reading a lot of the people I love to read, is going the extra mile. So going the extra mile in whatever you do is the habit of doing more than what you're paid for. So whatever you're at work, whatever it's your business, it's actually doing more than what is required to do. It's okay to do the bare minimum. That's going to get you by. But to win your customers over, to win your colleagues, your partners, and everything over is the habit of going the extra mile, right? So this habit is going to bring you favorable attention to those people who can provide you with opportunities for self-advancement. So in all human relations, it also enables you to command more than average compensation for personal services. It also leads to mental growth. When you do more than what you're paid for in many forms, you actually therefore add more earning capacity for yourself. So when you do the extra stuff, when you make yourself extra skilled than the people who are just skilled, you do have the ability to demand more out of yourself. You know, it also develops the important quality of personal initiative you know, allows you to build self-reliance and courage. It also allows you to build the confidence of others in one's integrity. You know, it also adds the mastery of the the destructive habit of procrastination. You know, procrastination kills. But when you go the extra mile, you kill this habit completely. You're a personal, you're a man or woman of action. It also allows you to develop the habit of the definite purpose. So this destroys the habit of aimlessness. You know, aimlessness is a vice. Drifting is a vice. When you're a person of a definite purpose and you're going the extra mile, you don't have time to drift. And drifting is one of the causes of failure. So if you do perform more service than what you're paid for and going the extra mile, you're going to be receiving a lot of blessings in your way. And this goes back to last week when I was talking about the universe and compound interest. You know, the universe works in the compounding effect. So what you do tomorrow is going to come back what you do today is going to come back multiplied so even if you're at your current job right now or if you are an entrepreneur and you're grinding it out you're doing more than what's asked from you you're doing more than what is asked for anything people are noticing people are noticing people are taking note of that people feel when someone does the extra work and even though you're not getting compensated right then and there a year or two years just understand that there's a law which is called the law of compensation and whatever you put in, you're always going to get out. So it might not be at your current position. It might not be at your current business. Whatever you did today, it's going to be rendered back to you 10 times over later on. So you just got to stick to the process. You got to stick to whatever you're doing because you will get what is due for you because you did go the extra mile and you render that service in a faithful, harmonious way. And we're all energy and the energy is going to be given back to you. So 
that is a tip of the week, guys. Do more that's required out of you. Do render more service that's paid. And just remember that this is what is going to allow you to get ahead. It's doing more than what's paid for. So that is the Hustle Nation tip of the week, guys. Just remember, you only get one shot at this. So you might as well go hard and you might as well do it better than whoever's doing it. And that is the Hustle Nation tip of the week. And now we're going to go into our housekeeping items and then into our podcast with Mark LaFleur. All right, guys, have a great week. Keep grinding, keep shining. And we're going to see each other at the top. Hey, guys, before we hop into the podcast, we have a few housekeeping announcements for free to support the podcast. If you're on Apple, make sure you rate and write a review about our podcast. This makes a huge difference on Instagram. Make sure to take a screenshot and tag us in their Instagram stories. It makes a huge difference. It helps us share the podcast out and expand the community. On Twitter, we're at 247Hustlers. And on Facebook, we're Hustle Over Everything. Guys, we were busting our ass, especially Owen, working on their weekly newsletter. It's called The 24-7 Hustle. It covers news in business, music, and culture, all through the lens of entrepreneurship. And for our paid options, guys, we have some great merch on the store. Check it out at hustleovereverything.co. And lastly, our Proud to Pay program is linked in the description down below. Now let's hop into the show. Awesome. Mark, welcome to the show, man. How are you? Good, man. Good. I'm happy to be here. Finally, I know it's been a long time coming, so today's the day. Yeah, man. Thank you for hopping on, man. You have a really impressive business, honestly. Yeah. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. It's been, uh, you know, like any any founder will tell you, man, it's been a roller coaster for the past four years, but we're definitely happy with where we're at today. Mm-hmm. Awesome, man. Yeah, man. You know, I, I first came across you, like, when I saw you on Dragon's Den, and, uh, you know, Alex told me again, I was like, you heard, have you heard of Mark? I'm like, nah. He's like, yeah, check him out. And I was like, oh, yeah, I remember seeing him on Dragon's Den and uh, everything just came back together. And uh, just learning more about you, reading your story, learning how you started the business. Um, it's really admirable. And as well, too, we're going to get into it with you back at uh, Waterloo, the things that you did that led you here. Um, really want to unpack all of that. And uh, yeah, we're excited to do this. Awesome, man. Strap it in. Yeah. Awesome, man. So let's start with the icebreaker. That's how we start the podcast now with a little icebreaker. So, what was one of your last big purchases? Uh, my last big purchase. Honestly, I need to get some new Tims. So, I got some new Tims. Exciting. You know, I live that founder life. So, I'm not really blowing a whole lot of cash stuff right in the center. Um, but yeah, I would say that was the, the most expensive thing I bought recently. Um, I bought some computer monitors actually uh, for working at home. So those are those are the things. Nothing super crazy right now. That's what, what like two hundred dollars. Tim's are like two hundred bucks. Yeah, and then the monitors. Actually, I got like the dual monitors. So like each monitor was maybe like five hundred bucks. But um, I had to get this like custom three D printed piece to mount them because I bought the monitors. Didn't realize they weren't compatible with the monitor mount. Turns out these monitors aren't compatible with any monitor mounts, which is ridiculous because they mm-hmm. literally make mounts that are universal. But Samsung decided to be super difficult. 
So how do we get this thing 3D printed, which cost me like another 200 bucks. So wow. I had to do that. Next. You get the curve joint? I think that's like all. No, it's not That's curved, the new trend. It's, they're not curved, but they're these massive, massive, like 30-inch, 30 30-something 30 inch that'll go side by side. They're called the, the Samsung Space Monitors. So uh, I'm pr- pretty excited about getting those set up. Awesome, 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 man. And last one, man. I oh, actually want to score let's go around. You know, oh, what was some, one of your like, biggest purchases? My biggest purchase I've made was um, <clears throat> I bought a couch, actually. You know, I just moved into a new place, so... I went on Structube. They had this amazing couch. It looks really posh, but it's like $4.99. So uh, really comfortable, really cozy. Uh, you know, when you're watching the Raps game, you need to have a proper setup, you know? So Got that was like my, uh, that was my last, latest biggest purchase. Very adult purchase. Yeah, that, that means you're growing up. You know, when you're buying a couch, you're buying artwork, you're buying these little things to fill out the house. That means that uh, you're paying bills like... You know, I just got a new place, right? So you're paying hydro. I'm like, what the hell? Now I got to pay hydro and all these things. So there's levels to this, this thing called life. Never forget the first time when I graduated, I had to pay tax for the first time. I'm like, okay, I'm official. It's done. Now I'm adulting now. Adulting season is upon you, bro. Yeah. Yeah. That's a fact. For me, um, huh. Honestly, I was going to say rent, but that's not a purchase. <laughs> um, no, nah, I would say the last purchase I've made that's like, I guess, has been somewhere over like $100. Probably been the, the last pants I bought from SP Badu. Shout out SP Badu, uh, Spencer. Mm-hmm. He was um, on the podcast as well. And yeah, I think that was like $150. The last purchase I've probably made over 100 bucks mm-hmm. that I can remember. Yeah, other than that, though, everything's been, like, under 100, being yeah. consistent. Co- Corona's keeping you inside, bro. There's yeah, no need to spend. Right now. Exactly, man. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, man. So, with that being said, let's hop into your come up, man. Um, I know you started that um, in Montreal. Correct me if I'm wrong. No, so I grew up in Cornwall, so probably, like, half an hour, 40 minutes outside Ottawa, um, and, like, an hour okay. outside of Montreal, but still on the Ontario side. Ah, got you, got you, got you. And what were you doing before you were an entrepreneur? I mean, with True Local, did you have other gigs going on? Um, well, yeah, like before, yeah, yeah, oh yeah, for sure. So before True Local, like True Local was my third startup. So I've been doing this thing, I guess, since 2012, just kind of, you know, dabbing my toe into the whole founder, entrepreneur world. Um, and that was while I was in university. So from Cornwall, I, uh, I graduated, or from Cornwall, I graduated high school, went to the University of Waterloo. And then it wasn't until about second year that I realized that like, I didn't really feel like working for anybody else. And I wanted to kind of build my own, uh, kind of forge my own way. And, you know, I've always thought I was a pretty bad employee. So mm-hmm. I've got a lot of ideas and I think my ideas are good and I'll take the, you know, I want to take the wins that come with it, but I also took the responsibility of the failures that come with it. So I really just needed, you know, latitude to do what I wanted to do. And I find it's very hard to find jobs that'll give you that. I think, you know, once you get to a certain point, it's a little bit uh, easier but, you know, being in university, no experience, it just kind of made more sense to start building my own businesses, really. So, um, you know, we did a couple startups prior to True Local. And then when True Local hit, um, it's been, you know, taking up 110% of our time ever since. And what were these startups you were doing uh, before True Local? Um, you know, what experiences did you get from these startups that led you to starting True Local? Yeah, tons. Um, so, the whole idea, I guess, where it started was when I was in university, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. You know, I was in the health program 
Um, but really I just wanted to, you know, enjoy university, you know, go to parties and have fun on the weekends. So I didn't even really realize like what a million dollars was. Like if you told me, Oh, that's worth a million dollars. I couldn't really wrap my head around it. Cause like if I could get 15, 20 bucks for the weekend, that's all I really cared about. So it wasn't until I heard this was in second year that uh, Snapchat got offered $3 billion by Facebook. Um, and they turned it down. And it really resonated with me because at the time I never, I barely even heard the word billion. And, and, you know, you can talk about inflation and all this type of stuff, but money isn't what it used to be. And now you hear billion thrown around left, right, and center, right? Like companies are becoming unicorns all the time. But back then it wasn't that normal to hear that the word billion thrown around. Um, and it just kind of hit me like a rock where it's like, wow, these are, these are a lot more than just little toys, you know? And that's what I thought it was. I thought that's what an app was. I didn't have an understanding of business. I'd never taken a business class, didn't take any, uh, didn't read any business books. I thought all ex that existed were, you know, trades jobs or, you know, professional services, like you're an accountant or you're an engineer, or you're a lawyer, you know, that, those were only really jobs that I knew about. I didn't know you could build your own companies, especially with an app. Cause like I said, I thought these things were just toys. Um, so when I heard that Snapchat got offered $3 billion, it kind of, you know, my ears perked up and I was like, okay, this is probably what I should be focusing some of my time on. And I started understanding that, you know, to build these apps, there's a ridiculous amount of technology that goes into them. And then you've got the whole, um, how do you acquire customers and how do you acquire users and how do you get traction and how do you stay above, um, the competition and how do you raise money to do all that stuff and start to understand that there's a whole business behind apps and really apps, you know, and just anything in, in, in any business in general. So from there, you know, it was like, this is what I want to be spending most of my time on. So I'm like, I'll get my degree because, you know, I, you know, I always said, so I was going to be able to get a foot in the door, but I'm going to start working on these side hustles and see if we can make something out of it. So of course, you know, me and my four roommates were figured, you know, why don't we take our OSAP and for any listeners who don't know what OSAP is, it's pretty much just Ontario student loans, student loan money. And we're like, look, you know, let's all throw our money together and we'll build an app um, and we'll be millionaires by the summer, you know, it'll be easy. Um, because once again, like how hard could it be to build a little app that sends messages to, to one another? So we figured, you know, why don't we just no do something that we know works? We'll take some ideas from Snapchat and we'll do messaging instead. So this is in 2012. So Snapchat hadn't done messaging yet. So it wasn't a complete ripoff. It was pretty much like a 90% ripoff. So we did the whole idea where, you know, you send someone a message and if they open that message, um, they can't open it again and gets deleted. We also had things early on, you know, the deadline features. So having it so that if you set your timer for four hours and they haven't checked a message in four hours and they never got it in the first place. I think the whole idea there was that, you know, we marketed it like it was some great innovation and it was like, this is so useful for business and event planning and all that. But really it was just a bunch of university kids using it for booty calls. So that way if they send something out at like 2 a.m., they could have like a one hour timer. If someone didn't open it on the flip side, then it would just get deleted in the first place. So people loved it because of that. Mm -hmm. So we did that and, uh, you know, it was me and four of my roommates and none of us had any experience whatsoever. We had no idea. We didn't know what business was, barely knew how to incorporate a company. That in itself took, you know, months of just navigating and it's scary. You're hopping on phone calls with lawyers. You don't know, never talked to a lawyer before and what's an incorporation and, you know, name search databases and just things like that that are so basic that were just challenging to go through because you've never done it all the way through to, okay, how do we build an app? Do you um, find some freelancer? Do you hire, hire somebody? Do you bring on an employee? What do you do? So we kind of navigated all that while figuring out the ins and outs of how to build a brand and, you know, how to get uh, some PR and some media attention. And that was, you know, step number one um, in, you know, my, my founder career, entrepreneurial career. 
And I think the biggest thing about it was that we just did it. You know, we didn't think about it. It wasn't about, is this the right idea? Is this the right plan? It was an idea. It was viable. So we're like, why not go after it? There are so few ideas nowadays that are unique um, at all. Most, mostly you're just improving on an existing design um, or you are doing something that you think you can do better than the competition. Idea A might not be that much better than idea B or C or D. And most founders have this problem, right? They've got all these ideas. And they're like, which one's the right one? They're probably all the same level of average, right? Maybe you got 10% better chance of success on this one versus the other one, but it's not significant. All that matters is how you execute over the next five years of you trying to build that business. So um, for us, you know, that's just kind of what we looked at it. Like we didn't think twice about it. Was there better ideas we could come up with for sure? But I can almost guarantee you right now, looking back on it, it was the first idea we came up with. Okay. How can we be millionaires? How can we copy this? What can we do? Let's do it for messaging. Didn't overanalyze it. Um, and we went after it and there's an argument to be said that it failed, but I would say that yeah. it didn't fail because the idea sucked, it failed because we sucked. So <laughs> learned a bunch of stuff through that. And then, you know, kind of just been rinsing and repeating it. And, you know, we make a ton of mistakes and I fail all the time, but I typically don't do it twice. Mm-hmm. So going into the next venture, it was, okay, here's what I learned on the first one. Um, I'm going to try to plug those holes while going into my second venture and same thing, you know, when that one failed, it was okay. Let's take this on to the third one. And now this time I've got, you know, even more of the, the picture filled out. So I think I can make it uh, further than we did another few. So that's kind of where it all started. It's crazy how um, you had that paradigm shift of not knowing what the startup scene is like Silicon Valley. I remember, I don't know if you ever remember this guys, but remember the Yo app? It's like, you can just send yeah. someone a Yo. Yeah. And I think your Snapchat moment was my Yo moment. They gave them a billion dollars, not a billion, but a million dollars in funding. for this app that just said yo and that's when i was just i was back in uh, my hometown in sarnia ontario and i was just like chilling looking at TechCrunch. i'm like they got a million dollars for this i i downloaded the app i'm like wow like this is crazy um i remember the snapchat thing happening and then instagram came out they got sold for a billion dollars in like under 600 days which was you know unprecedented it's never been done before so when you guys built the app what kind of traction did you get and what was the demise of you guys moving on from the app? Yeah. So the traction was relatively minimal still. Like we had just started, but we had gotten traction at UW, like in Waterloo, right? Like mm-hmm. it was our, our own sort of ecosystem and we never raised any money for it. So like, this is all bootstrap. So we were just doing things like organically through Facebook when that actually used to have some sort of effect. Um, so, you know, had a little launch party, got our first, you know, base of users, and then actually what ended up killing it is I accidentally deleted our database. Oh, <laughs> that was pretty much the final nail in the coffin. You know, we, as any founder, you know, you get kicked in the nuts every single day. You're getting punched in the face. Um, and it's okay because usually you have the motivation and the drive to keep going through it. But we were already getting beaten up just throughout the workload. You know, it was the first time to know what to expect. And then I accidentally literally went, hit delete. I was trying to delete one part of it, deleted the entire thing, no backups. And we're like, all right, let's throw in the towel on this one. We're done here. So that was, uh, that was the demise of that. Uh, of the towel, yeah. Damn. Um, damn. That's crazy. If you ask any founder, like you, you, you wouldn't believe the stories that you hear on how things, how things fail or whatever, you know? So that's, uh, that's, that's one of my good ones. 
Jeez. Yeah, that's hilarious, man. To go back real quick, you know, me and Owen were actually just talking about Snapchat um, in that last podcast about um, yeah. them being sold to, to Facebook and if it was a good decision to take it or not. What's your opinion, man? Do you think looking back now, you know, now that we have um, the future on our side, do you think that Snapchat should have taken the, that, those $3 billion? Yeah, like, yeah, of course. Like without without looking at their cap table, I don't know. I would assume he still had a, quite a bit of ownership in the business. But yeah, of course. Like I, I'm a huge believer in you know uh, I'm a huge believer in deals that are on the table. You know, and one of the big things for me with where I'm at today is that you know we've been able to build what we have today with no resources, right? You know, we quit our jobs for this. We didn't pay ourselves for the first couple of years. Like we're we're hella broke, right? Um, and we were able to build a successful business. My whole thing is that, you know, True Local is not the be all end all. It's not, you know, there's going to be a lot more chapters for myself after True Local. Um, so for me, it's been, you know, what, how, what position will I be in at that time that'll help me in my next ventures? And when I look at something like being offered $3 billion, it's kind of like, what could you have done with that money? What could have been the next thing that you did? You know, unless it's your dream, it's your passion, like you're fortunate enough to have stumbled upon something that you are passionate about and able to build to make money off of it and you control the majority of the business and you're able to hire all the people you want to hire um there's always something better you know there's always a better idea a better way so for me i always look at it where you know you got three billion dollars even if you make 300 million out of that after taxes it's like damn that's a good amount of money that you can go and really change the world or really create i don't know too like snapchat's probably one of the, the the social medias that i follow the least so who knows, maybe they do have a mission to change the world, but all I've been seeing from them is, you know, a bunch of snaps and some glasses. So it hasn't seemed like they're really doing anything that's bettering the world. At least Facebook tries to connect everyone together and all that. But for me, I, yeah, I would have taken that deal in a heartbeat. But once again, I've always said, you know, I'm not, I'm not Evan, I'm not the CEO. I'm, you know, I, I would say that he's going to know better than I would at the time. So. Mm-hmm. Um, going back to, you know, true local, um, you first got your start in the meat business, uh, doing door-to-door sales uh, back in Waterloo. How did you get into sales? Uh, how was that process like? And how was it like selling meat door-to-door? I mean, I can imagine that's one of the most difficult things to sell door-to-door. Uh, yeah, 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 I'd say so. Like, you know, I got into it because I was I was working three jobs at the time to pay through school and go through all that. And then my roommate, um, he was a little older than the rest of us were. And he used to go to his day job every day. And we never really knew where he was going. And one day we asked him, he's like, Oh, I work for this, you know, door to door meat sales company. And you know, he told us how much he was making. And I was like, Hey, like, you know, I need some more part time work. You know, what's what's it like? And he's like, you talk really fast, you know, you might be pretty good at this Why don't you go give sales a shot. So I got an interview and they hired me on the spot. And then yeah, I Honestly, it was pretty much the whole idea. Like they would go door to door and set appointments. And then as a sales rep, the appointment, would, the sales rep would go to the house and pretty much try to sell your way into the house and then be like, Hey, I've got a free sample for you. Can I just drop it off and tell you a little bit about the sample, which would lead into about an hour and a half long pitch where you're trying to close them on, you know, signing up for a year's worth of meat. And, um, I did that for four years, you know, and it, it was, it was good. It was great. It wasn't that that hard. You know, you'd go out and make a few sales a day. Um, and things were okay. And I think it's all based on the fact that it was a, it was a great product. I know some of the people wanted, they wanted mm-hmm. better quality meat. They wanted to know where it was coming from. They wanted no added hormones or antibiotic free. Um, so the, the product was great. It's just a business model that made no sense. The door to door aspect made no sense. The selling people a year's worth up front made no sense. Like those are all the things that were causing challenges. For people. Mm. Hold on. You sold um, a year's worth of meat up front. 
Yeah. So a year's worth of meat up front, the minimum package was like $3,500. And then you sell them on the idea that, oh, you could do like a payment plan, which is really a credit form, which mm-hmm. like you got to sign up for like it's a whole credit alone to buy this meat for a year. And, you know, I kept looking at that and I'm like, okay, we sell a lot of this and the company's doing a ton of money. Um, you know, people love this product. But for me, I was like, you know, we don't have to trick people into buying a year's worth. You know, if the product is good, they'll do it. So that's kind of where True Local came about where we're like, let's do all this online. You know, there's no, you know, sketchy door-to-door people coming and saying, hey, can I come to your house with a pound of ground beef? You know, you can order online, order a small amount if you want. You know, we sell a month's worth at a time. And if you don't like it, you don't like it. But my thing was that, you know, we're going to provide people with a product that they love so much and an experience that's so great and so different than what's out there that we don't need to get them locked up for a year. They're just going to keep on ordering because it's a good product. And the day that it stops being a good product is the day that they can go somewhere else. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of one of the, the big revelations that we saw with True Local. So how did you shift from doing that door-to-door business to launching True Local? Like what are the insights that you saw that this model, like, um, okay, first, how did you transition to True Local and what is True Local? What is the business model and what do you guys do? For the audience to hear from you. Yeah, for sure. So we started four years ago. And when we started the business, the whole idea was that we wanted to give people easy access to value-added meat products. So when we talk Mm -hmm. about value-added meat products, we're talking about things like um, 100% grass-fed, grass-finished, or things like RWA, which is raised without antibiotics, Um, you know, organic products. We wanted to give people access to local. That's the overarching umbrellas that we wanted all these products to be sourced from the province as well. Mm -hmm. So instead of looking at national supply chains where national supply chains are bringing in products from all over the place and you go to all these different, technically, you know, uh, you know, I guess an old world distribution center, which is a grocery store, you know, people are coming there and they're distributing the products to them. Um, we figured we wanted to do it online and make it so that we'd had one hub within a province, all the products would go there and then we'll dish it out to anybody within the province. So if you got someone in Sudbury who wants to get something from a farm in Windsor, it's not doable before we came around. So our thing now is wanted to make that really, really simple. So pretty much the idea of is you would go online. We've got over 130 different products now in Ontario alone, and you can mix and match your box with whatever products you want. So everything from hundred percent grass fed, uh, beef to RWA chicken to, you know, pork to, to the only stuff we have that's not from Ontario is our seafood for obvious reasons. We have wild caught. So we have wild caught salmon. We've got Ontario perch and pickerel. You can put all of that in one box and have it sent out to you as opposed to maybe getting half of your stuff, um, getting half of your stuff bought from the grocery store, then the other half from the farmer. So that was kind of where it all came about. Um, and, you know, we've grown the business across Canada that way, you know, and the whole idea is that any province you're in, so we operate in Ontario, Alberta, BC. If you're in Ontario, you're going to get Ontario products. If you're in BC, you're going to get BC products and you're going to see different products based on what postal code you put in. So that's kind of how all of it started. Um, and then from there, over the past two years, what we ended up seeing happen was um, was the fact that four years ago, what we were doing was new to the space. Like it wasn't innovative. Like we didn't invent e-com. We didn't invent food delivery. You know, meal kits started making tons and tons and tons of dollars and making hundreds of millions in investment a couple of years before we started. But what we were doing was new to our space, mm-hmm. um, which was online meat or just meat in general. So we wanted to be the best company in the world at connecting you to the source. And mm-hmm. what we meant by that was that we wanted to eliminate as many middlemen as possible because everyone seems to think there's one middleman, this big boogeyman of a middleman. That's not the case. 
you know, one middleman is probably not a bad thing. You got to be able to get a product from the farm who grows it to your house. Mm -hmm. That's fine. But when you've got three middlemen or four middlemen, that's when you start running into problems. So we wanted to shorten that chain as much as possible. And two years ago, we started realizing as the business was growing, that there's a lot of challenges for uh, local producers, local suppliers, local butchers. Um, you know, whether they be selling to grocery stores and have to maintain these ridiculous minimums or whether they're dealing with restaurants, um, and they have to, uh, uh, they, they have ridiculous terms and they only want one specific cut of meat, you know, the restaurant might want just strip loins or just ribeyes, Well, what do you do with the rest of the animal? So we started realizing that enabling these farmers and producers to sell their own products is the best thing that we can do. And that's where things started shifting for us. And we started realizing that like, look, if we're trying to take on the national supply chains, which, you know, kind of described it a little bit earlier, and we want to make it as easy as possible to shop with all these local producers and local farmers, and we want to give them the platform to sell the products, really what True Local is all about is developing Canada's regional supply chains. We want to make it so that you have equally as much option to shop with producers that are an hour away from you or two hours away from you, which most people look at as a barrier. Like they're not going to drive an hour out to the farm unless they really love that farm just to get beef. Right. We want to make it so it's easy to shop with those individuals. So that's, you know, where we're focusing on now is giving them the e-com solutions um, so that they can sell their products directly to consumers. And that's kind of where we're at now. And it's been this transition over the past four years. Mm-hmm. Essentially building a marketplace um, for, for meat products and et cetera. Right. Yeah. Except for we want to, we want to also handle all of the logistics as well. Mm-hmm. So it's not just the marketplace where you can kind of browse products and then, you know, third party deliver. There's a lot of different things Like we actually want to own it from end to end. Mm-hmm. So we want to give people from, from the tech standpoint, yes, we want to give them marketplace, but we also want to make sure that we've got a system in place that can deliver those products sustainably. So being able to return packaging, um, you know, things like that are, are big things that we want to see make a difference. We want to be able to differentiate by offering those types of things as well. That's a good point you brought up about the systems because you guys have like a, a local regional uh, distribution centers, right? Or is that how it kind of works? So then how do you kind of replicate that system outside of, a, of that specific geo? Like when it comes from Ontario to um, Alberta, how do you kind of maneuver through that? Is it the same exact system or do you kind of um, have to reinvent the wheel when you go to a different province? The main thing to reinvent when you're going to different provinces is, is the market, the consumers in the market, but the whole, and then with the suppliers that you're dealing with, but with us, yeah. So we're, you know, if you're ordering in Ontario, you're getting Ontario products. If you're ordering in Alberta, you're getting Alberta products. Like we're not shipping, you know, BC products to Alberta and Alberta products to Quebec or anything like that. The whole idea is that you're getting it from that province. The only asterisk on that is that that's our main true local model. So the main true local model is shop for products in your province, get it delivered within your province. You're getting it from local producers in your province. Um, But we had a lot and we're operating locally in Alberta, Ontario, and BC. We had a ton of people, you know, out East and, you know, Manitoba and provinces like that, that were like, well, look, can we still get the value add? Can we get the, you know, the grass fed and the organic? And we're like, yeah, but it's going to come out of Ontario. So we still service those people, but it's not part of our true local model. Right. So they can get the products uh-huh. that they want, but it's not part of the true local models for us. We want to expand and have a distribution center in every province that allows us to service those individuals in that province with products that are sourced from their province. Oh, uh, got it. Uh, what is like your criteria for farmers to join in on your network? Like, what do you look for in a farmer as a supplier uh, for them to work with you? Uh, what What's the selection process like? 
honestly, it starts with just a great story, great products. Like it's gotta mm-hmm. be great people. Right. So I think that's the biggest thing that people are starting to realize a little bit more now. If I told you four years ago that you could shop with this organic no-name product, or if you could shop from no certifications, but, you know, Jenny, you know, Jenny, the farmer down the road, and here's her entire story and here's how she raises her animals. And all of this stuff literally falls into the same criteria of organic, but she just can't afford to get the organic certification. Um, What are you going to choose? Four years ago, people probably choose the organic certification. But mm-hmm. as more and more consumers nowadays, and that's where we used to fall into as well. Hey, if you weren't certified, we couldn't offer you on the platform. Mm-hmm. However, as consumer shop, as consumers' habits are changing when it comes to food, it's all boiling down to transparency. It's all boiling down to the story. And I want to know how it's raised. I want to know the people that are behind it. So for us, really, it, it used to be the product first, then the people. But now it's actually the people and then the product. Because what we've realized is that there are a lot of amazing, amazing, amazing products and a lot of amazing people that fit with what we're doing, which is, you know, more small scale, um, you know, more sustainable, more traceable, um, and people that don't have a problem being showcased in the limelight. You know, we've always said it's funny the amount of people that want to work with us and we say, hey, cool, can we come down, check out the farm? You know, you guys want to sign some contracts saying that this is everything you say it is. And they're like, well, you know, we'd rather not do that pretty big red flag for us right Mm -hmm. so for us you know we do always start you know and everybody reaches out to us and we'll start checking out you know online some of them don't have websites get an idea of what kind of products do you have so we start with the people and then it's like look are you offering 100 percent grass fed are you offering pasture raised is it rwa what are the things that make your product better than somebody else's and what are the things that make your operation unique so for us it's always about giving we'll choose the suppliers and then give the consumer the choice So once again, back in the day, it was almost like organic was against RWA and grass fed was against AAA and you had one was better than the other. Mm. And we started realizing that like that, once again, that's not the case, it's preference. If you're really a foodie and you love your food and you love the taste, well, what's going to matter most to you is a AAA cut of steak. Like you want it to be marble, right? Um, Versus someone who's like, well, I only care about the health benefits. I just want to be as healthy as possible, as clean as possible. Well, then you're going to want to focus on 100% grass-fed, grass-finished. Um, and same with organic. Maybe some people are like, look, if it doesn't have a certification, I don't want to touch it. No problem. Then organic works well for you. So we offer all the above. And we give people the ability to choose what they would prefer. Like I've got AAA beef. We've got AAA local beef. Sorry, AAA local beef. We've got 100% grass-fed, grass-finished beef. And we've got organic beef. So people can choose which one matters most to them. And what we want to do is just highlight the people and the stories and the reasons why that they feel their products are the best and let people make that decision from there. Got it. Got it. How'd you come up with this model? You know, cause it's like, it's like genius the way you orchestrated it to have, you know, that kind of distribution. Um, and this like the whole system. Did you create that yourself or did you like have an inspiration that you kind of modeled it after? Well, in the early days when we were just selling online, like I said, it wasn't anything unique, you know, for us, it was, you know, everyone's, everyone's moving to e-com. Uh, more and more people are moving from retail and getting more accustomed to shopping online. And it was still such a small percent, like 5% or something like that. It was probably less than 5% of people that were still shopping online. Mm-hmm. And we figured we could take best practices from all these other industries and we'd be able to run a successful business because it was niche. So that really wasn't anything unique. It just kind of made sense. It was kind of common sense. You know, it was models that were already done out there. But as we've progressed more and more into this whole development of regional supply chains and trying to say like, hey, look, instead of having a couple really, really big food processors that distribute across the entire country, why don't we have a lot of really small uh, producers that people would rather be shopping with, but make it easy to shop with them. 
And that's where getting a better understanding of the market, being in the business, learning how to deal with last mile delivery, learning how to vet different suppliers, learning to figure out what consumers were looking for. That's where more of it became more fine tuned. And now it's not so much of a, Hey, let's see what works. It's more like, okay, we know what we need to do to be successful here. Mm-hmm. Um, that, and it leads itself, right? I've always said that if you've got a vision or if you've got a goal, if you're going something, if you're going after something and you can see it very clearly, it leads itself. So when I say, hey, we want to be the best company in the world at connecting you to the source, and we want to do that by developing regional supply chains in Canada, to me, everything that comes underneath that is common sense and it falls into place. We've got to really understand these four, five, six different aspects of the business, and we've got to do that at an elite level. And if we do that, then we'll be able to hit our goal of regional supply chains, which will give us our goal of being you know, the best company in the world at connecting you to the source. So I think early on, you're using best practices from other people. But as you spend more time in your business, you're starting to develop your own. Mm. Yeah, like business is all about like setting up systems in place, you know, like reading um, books like the E-Myth uh, Revisited. I don't know if you've read that book, but it's big on systems. Um, you scaled your business from Ontario. You first started in Ontario and then you went out to like other provinces slowly. Um, what systems did you internally create that gave you the confidence to you know what we're ready to go to our second expansion our first expansion which i don't know what you can tell us what province that was how did you create these systems and how did you test them to make sure like okay this will work in a different province um or did you know that it's duplicatable in another one in another province and if not how did it how did you switch it up Yeah, I think the biggest thing that we realized um, in terms of being able to scale ongoing was the way we set up our meetings, the way we communicate within the business and scaling our marketing. And the reason I say that is because we always had to have a a head office and then a warehouse. So you've got these two different cultures, right? Which is very challenging in a startup when you're trying to create this, this overarching culture. And then when we started expanding into new markets, it was another location and another location. So the biggest thing to streamline any process before the actual process itself is making sure that everyone's on the same page, everyone's aligned, and we do that through proper communication. And that was one of the most challenging things because nobody really talks about that. Um, It's how you're conveying goals to one another. It's what channels are you guys using? Is it Slack? Is it email? Is it phone call? How did you set up your meetings? Who's holding accountability in the meetings? And this was something that was really important for us to continue to grow and continue to scale because we started doing it very quickly. So we needed to make sure, and in the early days, we, we fumbled all the time, right? When we did Alberta, which is our next ex- expansion, um, it was almost like running two sub- completely separate businesses. They were no, in no way, shape, or form were we using the uh, knowledge that we had learned from opening and starting True Local in Ontario in Alberta. It was, you know, the guys were just kind of going at it and using what worked and reconciling all of that over the course of a year or however long is what really started making us that was much more replicatable. And then of course, that's just on the operation standpoint, but then marketing is everything, right? So mm-hmm. from the marketing standpoint, are you able to scale what you did in one market into the next? And I think that was a big part of it. You know, we really got our marketing dialed in um, on a regular basis. So that made it a lot easier to launch in these different markets and get success relatively quickly. Let's dive in deeper, Derek. How did you shift like the marketing efforts in the different marketplaces or in the different geos? 
it really wasn't that much the benefit of digital marketing nowadays, right? So you just start opening up new markets on whatever strategies you're doing. If you're working with influencers, reach out to influencers in that market. If you're doing paid advertising, you know, flip one button and add a new market into those those advertising means. I think one of the most important things though is making sure that you are separating your messaging and making sure that you're doing proper segmentation and understanding the different audiences in these different markets. Yeah. But yeah, that was this is the benefit of starting a business nowadays. And I think that using things like that is a great sort of fuel to add onto a fire, you know, the ability to have, um, you know, the ability for paid advertising and you can pay for impressions is great um, to use, especially during expansion. However, the problem is most people look at it as a crutch mm-hmm. and that's what they build their entire business on. And they never have any other strategies or channels that don't involve paid advertising. And that's where you get into trouble. Because it's very difficult nowadays, at least in the past couple of years, to be profitable with paid advertising. You can grow, but you're not necessarily going to be profitable because cost per acquisition costs are going up significantly. There's more and more businesses going up. So I think that's one of the things to understand is that marketing is, you know, you want to have as many levers as possible at your disposal. However, you want to know which of the five out of your 50 levers you want to activate at any given time and how much. You don't want to be in a situation where you've only got two levers and they're both maxed out or one's maxed out. And vice versa, you don't be in the situation where you have a hundred levers and you're only using one or two of them or vice versa, you're tweaking them all and they're all out of range, right? So I think that's a really important part of it is understanding what channels and what strategies work best for what stage of your business you're at. That's so important. I can't uh, put any exclamation points like on that because that's just so important. I, have, I do have a paid agency myself and that's something that I focus on. If a company is only coming to me to have their one marketing channel as paid i'm like this is a red flag you know <laughs> we can't do business um whereas if this is their one lever they want to add to their marketing um artillery then it makes sense you know um so let's talk a little bit more about that real quick before we move on to building the brand um what worked well for you what didn't work well i'd love to learn more about that because not a lot of um people we've had on the podcast get to this level of scale that quickly so do you mind diving deeper there yeah it's honestly timing is everything and the fact that we try everything so we'll try everything like there's i can almost guarantee there isn't something we haven't tried yet and if there isn't we would try it in a second Mm -hmm. it's how much do we double down on it and that's the thing because there's a lot of things that we tried that we deemed not successful because we didn't go hard or deep enough because it wasn't worth the risk at the time Mm-hmm. So that's what I'm saying. So when I say we've tried everything, I'm not saying we've done everything well. I'm not saying that it's said to say that because we tried it and it didn't work, that it's not successful. It's that at that time, we didn't either give it enough um, or it just wasn't showing any, any value for us. So the word I'm saying that is that timing is everything because the more things you can try, the more things you can do, um, the, the bigger your tool belt is whenever you do find an opportunity to use that specific channel, right? So when you look at it for us, we rode the wave of your paid advertising when it was relevant, you know, 2017, 2018. These were great for Facebook, great for Instagram, great for Google um, search, uh, you know, paid search, SEO, things like that. These are great times. Um, Fast forward, you know, into 2019 and influencers were the biggest thing, you know, working with big influencers was a great opportunity. Just like working with micro influencers was a great opportunity. 
Um, but that one was a little bit more short lived, I think. And I think that now a lot of people are very tired of, you know, the micro influencers and everyone's an influencer. If you have 2000 followers and, you know, you get into a situation now where it's always been something where the majority of your uh, influencers are just doing brand awareness and maybe 20% of your influencers are doing, you know, a bulk of the volume. So we have some really good relationships with some really amazing influencers that we work with on an ongoing basis. But once again, it was all about timing because I think if we had done it earlier, we might've been a little bit too soon. And if we did a little bit later, I would say we're on the tail end of when influencers were still really successful. And once again, that's for us, you know, there are people nowadays that will double down on that and can scale a business to $30 million in two years using influencers. Once again, just different strokes, right? So for us, that's what we found. Um, and we do that ongoing, you know, for us, it's okay. What's the most relevant right now? What do people need the most right now? And what are people listening to right now? Are people really burnt out on paid advertising? Are people really burnt out on influencers? Well, what's the next thing we can look at? But the biggest thing that, that mattered to us on top of the timing and choosing what strategies and what channels to use at what particular milestones of the business was the fact that we've built a community since day one. And our customers are the reason that we're at where we're at today because we got so fortunate early on that we had customers that really are, uh, you know, they live and breathe true local. Like we have a lot of diehard customers and it's that old adage where it's like, I'd much rather have a hundred customers that love us than 10,000 that like us. And I think that was, that reigned very true with true local. And what that allowed us to do was build our communities and the true local community is, it's, you know, it's, it's one of the best things that we've got. And I think that that's part of the reason why we've had the success we've had today. So it wasn't like whenever we were doing marketing, we ever had to rely exclusively on any given channel to drive us forward. We were always able to rely on our community and word of mouth and reviews and content and just the social engagement that we get from our customers and layer on top of that all these different channels for short periods of time while they worked. And then we would take a step back, lean back on the community and then boom, we'll push forward again with a new strategy that maybe lasts, you know, six months to a year. Um, and then we kept doing that. So it's being good at marketing is all about understanding what works right. And when. Mm, beautifully said, and I couldn't great, agree more. Great and, stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Honestly, um, diving deep into what you've been doing and like is looking at, you know, like your ad library and, going through like the different campaigns you guys have run, I was really impressed with um, you guys marketing. So one thing that also is really um, relevant to us is the way you've kind of etched out your brand. You know, can you tell us about your mindset when you were creating it and how you approached it, you know, mm. through, during like the, your launch phase? Yeah. So I find branding kind of funny because whenever you ask people about branding, a lot of people stutter and can't really articulate what a brand is. Like they know what it is, but they can't really articulate it. Yeah. And I've always thought it was the simplest thing in the world. And ironically, the answer to what a brand is, is everything that people struggle with when articulating it. Um, the whole idea of a brand is a brand is what people feel when they think about your company. Like case in point, that's a brand. When you think about Nike or you think about Adidas or you think about McDonald's or you think about anything, you might see a logo and you might see some colors, but really what you do is you get a feeling about that company. The same way that people have trouble describing a brand, they feel what a brand is, but they can't really articulate it. So, you know, for me, branding's always been when someone says the name True Local, how do you feel immediately when you think about that company? Do you feel good? Do you feel happy? Do you feel proud? Do you feel, you know, what, what is that feeling? So for us, I've always been a huge advocate of that. I think that no matter what your product, um, you'll always benefit from having a strong brand that gives people a, a, a strong sense of feeling, um, an emotional connection um, when they think about it. 
So I knew early on that we needed to build a brand that would have that exact same effect. And starting off, you know, everyone can get a cool logo. You can go on Fiverr, get a logo done and get some color schemes done. Um, and you can have a great idea and a super cool vision. That stuff's about heart, right? And we did that with True Local. You know, we got the look the way we wanted it and we got the messaging the way we wanted it. And the vision was always been crystal clear. But then the real part of having that successful brand where people think about your business and love it or they're happy or they get a sort of a, a good vibe is does your actions in the business and does your execution live up to that brand you've created? Because there are a lot of people who have really cool brands and really cool logos and their businesses are crap, right? Mm-hmm. They don't respond to customers. Mm-hmm. They give them bad, a bad experience. Their product quality isn't there. Their web experience isn't there. And that's where you start getting these really, really uh, catastrophic disconnects. So for us early on, like I said, it was about this needs to be a brand first business. And by brand first, it means that we need to build a community of people who believe in this brand. And to do that, it needed to look good. It needed to feel good. It needed to work good online, especially it needed to be unique. And then we needed to make sure that every time someone interacted with us, we left that mark of, wow, this brand lived up to what it looked like. It wasn't just show. They, you know, they talked the talk, but they also walked the walk. So we did that through, you know, being a customer service first business, right? We did that through having some of the best products that we could find and, and scouting it and making sure that the quality was there. Um, you know, we did that through the, the vision and the mission and, and trying to push forward the connecting you to the source model and getting people onto what I feel is a trend and not a fad. And, you know, shopping local, you look at all these different food diets and, and different reasons why people um, eat different products. It's a lot of them are fads, you know, whereas when it comes to supporting local, that's not a fad, that's a trend. So you take all of these different little aspects, these all these itty bitty little pieces that on their own don't work. You know, the logo doesn't work on its own. The website doesn't work on its own. The products don't work on their own. The, the mission doesn't work on its own. Um, the way you treat your customers doesn't work on its own. Um, and you put all that together though, and you find some ways to smoothen out the edges because as a growing startup, it's going to always want to fall apart. You got to kind of keep it in this nice little clay ball. When you put all that together, what you get as a result is a feeling. Mm-hmm. It's a feeling when people think about your company. And that's always been most important to us more than anything. Big gems. Big gems, man. We always talk about brand too. Like it's so true what you said about the feeling you get. Um, I learned this about when I was like in first year of uni. Like, you know, I was very into branding. I I really pride myself on being able to like come up with cool branding names uh, for different products. But it wasn't until like I realized that it doesn't matter what I think. Like I can create the vision. I can steer the the framework of how I want it to look. But if what my customer, if my customer doesn't reflect what I think, I know there's a major, major disconnect there. Um, And what I want to ask you, like, you know, you're talking about like making them feel right. Like making them feel like a certain way. Um, What are like some principles that you could share that really allow someone to feel a brand uh, apart from just like the assets that you create? So I think it's subjective and I think it changes for different brands, right? There are really strong brands out there, Dollarama, right? You feel a certain type of way, but that is all about cheap as possible. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm going to save in and out quick, you know, maybe the, the aisles. I don't know why, but when you think about Dollarama, I always think about the aisles, you know, mm-hmm. something like that. There's things there that are completely different than something like, you know, Nike once again. So I think for us, some of the really important things was, um, we really wanted to have people have a sense of pride, which mm-hmm. I think was important. So if you're shopping with true local, you're proud to shop with true local. 
Um, you know, it's something that you're like, you know what, I pay a little bit extra to get this level of quality in my home and I'm proud about it. Um, and I think that that's something that we achieved, uh, as, uh, and the result of that has been, you know, our organic social content, you know, the amount of people that tag true local, um, just because they support what we do or they like the look, or they're just proud to say, Hey, we're with true local. I think we've accomplished that. And I'm really happy about that. And on the flip side though, I think it's, um, it's, it's having them know that we're there for them. And it sounds cheesy and cliche, but that's something that our customer service department has done so well. If anyone has ever had an interaction with True Local uh, via customer service, I absolutely 110% promise you you had a great interaction. There's no offense or buts. We've taken care of whatever problem there might be. We've taken care of you. No questions asked. For us, it's not about what we do on box one. It's not about what we do on that initial order or even that second or third order. We care about dealing with you on your ninth and 10th and 11th order. So for us, we just want to make sure you have the best possible experience. And if there's anything that you had that wasn't up to par, we will always, always be able to take care of that for you. And I think people, people appreciate that. There's a lot of companies out there that I get a sense of, you know, even Walmart back in the day, where it was like those no hassle returns. And, you know, for us, it's food. It's different. It can't have like a, a no hassle return policy. But they, they, using their mechanism of having, you know, a brick and mortar location, made it feel really good about buying something and being able to know that you had this comfort. So with us, same thing, you know, we want to give people that level of, they know they have the support. If anything did go wrong, if there's any problems or questions or concerns, we're there, we're there for them. So I think that the combination of creating a brand that gives people a sense of pride, you know, they're proud to shop with this product. Um, they're proud to support the mission. You know, they're proud to say that, look, when I shop a true local, it means something, you know, it means that I'll spend a little extra. You know, it means that I like to eat good. It means that I like to support local, you know, it means I'm Canadian, you know, we've always kind of associated, you know, we've got our leaf. It's always been something. Those are kind of the vibes you get and on the flip side on the defense on the, you know, what, like, what, what does it mean personally for you? Like those are the extrinsic motivators. I think, I think intrinsically they're like, well, you know, this company's also going to take care of me. Like they, they care about me. They're not going to try to dick me around. You know, those are the feelings that I want people to get. And if, like I said, even if it's only just two, those are the two feelings that we want to make sure people have. And I think that, that I like to think, you know, that's what they do have so far. Most definitely. Um, so let's move on a little bit. Let's start talking about Dragon's Den. Dragon's Den experience, no. man. How was that? Yeah. Yeah, it was, it was awesome, man. It was great. You know, I've always said, I think nowadays Dragon's Den is a bit of a rite of passage for people. I think that regardless of what your business is and regardless of whether you need the money or whether you need the airtime, just go through Dragon's Den because it'll make you a better person. Um, even if you bomb on national television, a lot of people are very successful at raising money behind closed doors. I'm one of those guys. I can walk into a meeting. I, I don't get nervous in investment meetings. I like to talk. I can pitch my heart out. Um, and I have no issues, but that's also because we're behind closed doors and I could be a little bit more theatrical and I can stumble a little bit and then not have it be an issue whatsoever. On national television though, everything changes. Like I can't talk as fast as I talk in a meeting one-on-one. If you mess up, well, now the heat's on you, you start sweating, now you're going in your own head and you're losing your mind, and now, okay, it's game over, right? So it, it ups the stakes quite a bit. So for me, it was always this great opportunity to say, you know, am, am I full of shit? Like, can I do this on the main stage? Like, is it something that I can actually go ahead, talk the talk, but also walk the walk in front of the cameras? And for me, that's where it really came in from the personal side. Um, so that's why I would say as a rite of passage, not on the business side, but on the personal side, if you have an opportunity to put yourself in a challenging situation like that, you should do it, especially if you plan on being a business owner. 
on the business side, it's a great opportunity. You know, if you need uh, financial backing, you know, you're able to get some money on Dragon's Den. If you uh, need the exposure, then you're able to get the exposure. If your episode airs, you know, nationally across the country, they say that, I forget what it was, but something like if your episode airs on Dragon's Den, it's worth a million dollars in advertising. And then the flip side, you know, if you get a deal with a dragon, you might have a great mentor that you can work with over time. So I would highly recommend people do it. I think that if you are going to do it, be prepared. It still frustrates the hell out of me when you watch Dragon's Den and there's people on there that have no idea about their business, like basic, basic, basic things. So just go on there and take it seriously. And I think if you're doing that, then it's a great opportunity. Most definitely. One thing that really stuck out to me um, is in a previous interview, you mentioned that during the airing of the interview, you were actually working and you were on the chat bots uh, or the chat messenger on the website. Break that down because I feel like there's a lot of keys there that a lot of people don't pay attention to. Yeah, look, like if you are celebrating the night that your episode airs, you're, something's wrong right? Like what you're probably doing is manning your website for the influx of traffic that's coming in and the thousands of questions that are coming in. And that's what we had to do. So we didn't know what to expect, but we had our entire team, which was like five people at the time. Uh, and we got one of those live chat um, message box things that we were just manning it the whole night nonstop. And it was just going off, Hey, just sign on Dragon's Den, just sign on Dragon's Den, you know, wondering this, wondering that. And that's part of why we were successful on that night. Otherwise we would have lost thousands tens of thousands of dollars in sales by just not being there and just be like oh yeah let's hope the website works um and things are going well so i think that's an important thing that if your episode airs on dragon's end and once again it could be different right maybe maybe you're uh, a retail distributor or maybe you're a franchise and you don't have to be manning your website but if you're an online e-com shop and you're about to get traffic that could convert that night you have to be mailing you're, you're working triple time to make mm-hmm. sure that that's going to be successful for you a hundred percent. I want to um, even uh, go. I want to extend that point. When you're advertising on Facebook, when you're advertising on Twitter, when you have that influencer campaign and people are coming to your website for the first time, you should be there to actually answer those questions because people are going to be curious and wondering. All right, so what's that? What's this? How does this work? This is the time to speak to people and convert. You know, when I was working at a um, AI agency for Facebook ads the one thing that they made sure it was happening is that when someone came on the page from an ad, you were right there to meet them and send, and speak to them to convert. Now, that's one of the big tools a lot of people sleep on. This thing, hey, if I pay that someone will come on the page and automatically convert. There needs to be help. There needs to be a customer service person in the store speaking to you to help you walk through that page. A lot of times when people are putting in their credit card, they'd be like, oh, there's a postal thing missing. There's um, one thing going on with my bank account and they don't know what's really going on there and they need help to say, hey, oh, we just had a problem on our back end. You're having a problem with your bank. Go call your bank. You'd be surprised how many people need to get told to call their banks to make a purchase go through and how many people will actually do it to make the purchase go through. You know, Correct me if I'm wrong. No, absolutely. I think that a lot of people think that ads sell, but ads don't do anything other than drive traffic. Like that's it. Your ad drives traffic. You know, mm-hmm. your ad gets you a click. You could have the best ad in the world and someone could have made the decision to buy just through your ad on Facebook, which is highly unlikely, but it could happen. And then they could land on your website, have a bad website experience and be like, see you later. I'm done. Right. Mm-hmm. Vice versa. You could have a really crappy ad and that ad drives the traffic to your website, but you got that person there on the live chat. Like, hey, thanks for joining. You know, thanks for coming to the website. What can I help you with? And then you're able to sell them. So I think that's one really important thing to understand for people. But once again, it's a challenge in itself, right? There's a bit of a paradox there because 
it is very difficult to have a proper live chat set up. Mm-hmm. Like to be able to do that. And if you're doing it at scale, like if you're driving, you know, hundred thousand unique views a month or more or anything around there, you need someone doing that full time. And what most people do is they don't want to dedicate the time to it or they want to outsource it. And now let's go back to the branding. Well, the last thing I ever want to have happen is someone go to my website after we've done so much work to try to make people to show people that, Hey, look, you know, the one good thing about true locals were community. You're going to get the family experience. You're going to get all that. And then come to a website and you've got some outsourced computer service agent, you know, mistyping things, not being friendly, not being warm, not adding a smiley face, not giving that interaction. You know, that's not true local. So it's almost like, Hey, how do you reconcile the cost of running a, a, a proper live chat service and maintaining the brand. It's interesting. It's it, once again, we talk about levers, right? It's all, you know, what do you want to do? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, like we're, you know, close to wrapping up in time here, but COVID happened this year. Uh, you know, I want to touch upon this, like you being in like this business, how did it impact uh, your business overall? Like, did it, did you notice that you benefited from the pandemic or did you not benefit from the pandemic? Yeah, it's a real weird, like, it's been such a weird, surreal sort of scenario, because on one hand, I've got a lot of my business buddies that are doing some sort of essential service, and their, you know, revenues have gone up significantly. And on the flip side, I got a lot of my buddies that are gym owners and restaurant owners, and, you know, they've gone out of business because of what's been going on. So it's really unfortunate that there's 50% of people, well, it's less, it's less that have been doing well. And then the other 50% are going bad. So for us, you know, we were fortunate and we feel blessed that during the pandemic, we were deemed an essential service. You know, we deliver, uh, you know, we deliver frozen meat locally sourced to thousands, tens of thousands of families across Canada. So for us during the pandemic, our biggest thing was wanting to make sure to keep the doors open. So we had a lot of different challenges where some people had revenue challenges because less people were showing up or less people were purchasing. We were on the flip side. We had safety challenges. So making sure that because we're an essential service, how do we keep everybody safe? And then on top of that, we had staffing and supply chain challenges. So, okay, we've got tons of people looking for this product now. We've got to service these people and make sure that they get their food to their door because they're expecting it because they can't go to the grocery store or wherever else or other businesses that just weren't accepting new customers. So for us, it was really just a, um, I, I always say this, but I'm like, we went from being a company, um, uh, a marketplace that folks don't connect you to the source to being a warehouse and logistics company and everyone's focus needed to become that we got to be as efficient as possible to run a warehouse, to get these boxes out the door because we're getting, you know, three, four, five times amount of the orders in while being safe, while making sure we've got proper inventory levels for different spikes. So it was, it was, it was, it was a very, very interesting time. And like I said, you know, I feel, we do feel hundred percent blessed that we're on the side of it where we can say that we came out and the business has been able to grow. Um, but it wasn't one of those things where it was like, oh, cool. Let's just, you know, take on five times the customers and, you know, go and go to bed at night. It was a lot of different challenges that came with it. So I, I always got to say a huge shout out to, you know, the team at True Local for being able to pull that off because these guys were coming in day after day, you know, in uncertain times. And I think now people have a better understanding of it, but, you know, for our fulfillment staff and team that, you know, we're packing those boxes, you know, it's, I would just, yeah, I was like giving the shout out any chance we get a chance. I mean, every time we get a chance. Mm-hmm. Most definitely. How big is your team? So we've got about 55 people now across the country. Amazing. Is the uh, shipping externally? Do you, I know you, you mentioned Shipper B in one, like a previous episode as well. Is that still something you do or are you trying to internalize everything and, and when it comes to the end-to-end delivery models? It's a little bit of everything. And I think a lot of people are in that bucket right now. You're using major couriers, you're using same-day couriers, you're trying to deliver some yourself. 
last mile is always going to be the biggest challenge when it comes to any, you know, direct to consumer business. So I feel like a lot of people are experimenting with a lot of different things right now and we're in the same boat. So we've got, you know, up to seven different shipping partners that we'll work with. Um, and for us, it's, you know, who's, who's doing the best at any given time. And once again, similar to marketing, that changes quite a bit. Um, so for us, yeah, we're definitely gonna be looking at doing some of our own deliveries as well, but we still have shipping partners. Got you. All right. So I think actually that could be a great, uh, little thing to highlight before we work towards wrapping up. What advice can you give to people who are pivoting their business from retail to Shopify, et cetera, et cetera, and are trying to adjust logistically to the new models that we have to adjust to. What, yeah, what can you say there? Yeah, it's the same thing. Like with any founder, I always tell this, I'm like, you just got to strap in and be ready for some challenging times. Like it's what has to happen. So it's challenging times in terms of not market or anything, but if you now feel the need to your retail and you have to go online, um, which I, I would highly recommend. You got to understand that there's a new set of labor that comes with that, a new set of challenges. There's no easy, there's no easy switch that you can flip. And that's what we're trying to actually mend, right? So if you're looking to get into retail, you got to figure out shipping rates. You got to figure out how much that affects your margins. You got to figure out drop off and pickup of these packages. You got to figure out returns. You've got to figure out if I was done packaging, there's a lot of different things you have to take on and there's no real easy way to do that. You just got to strap in and say, okay, this is the next uh, iteration and evolution of my business. And I think that you have to do that. Like you have to be going into online and you have to take the challenges that come with it. And that's where true local comes in. And once again, specifically on the farming and the producer side. So a lot of different things out there. Um, uh, a lot of different things out there for other retailers and same thing with Amazon, right? What they do is they make it easier by saying, Hey, we'll do FBA fulfilled by Amazon, send us your stuff. We'll take care of the rest, but look at the cost at 30% margin. And then they compete with you. So it's like, do you want to build it yourself or do you want to sit in the crocodile's mouth and hope they don't snap shut? Right? So what we want to do with the producer side is provide that Amazon service where we can be like, Hey, look, you guys are the Kings and Queens of raising these animals. You don't want to go to the farmer's market anymore. The farmer's markets are closed. We can take care of the rest of it with True Local Connect. We'll give you the shop that you can use, and then we'll take care of the logistics. But we want to partner with them a little bit more. And that comes down to understanding our supply chain and understanding our last mile delivery and things like that. Um, So, yeah, I think that in terms of navigating, if you're transitioning from retail into uh, e-com, just got to understand that, you know, it's very doable. And it's exciting because your revenues will probably grow. It's just not something you can snap your fingers and get done. It's something you do have to meticulously understand and learn because otherwise you're going to start getting into margin issues, um, delivery issues, return issues, things like that. Most definitely. Uh, working towards wrapping up, is there anything that we did not cover? Uh, no, I love, love chatting with you guys. You know, I'm, I'm glad. I hope uh, the audience is enjoying what they're hearing so far. And I'm always, always reachable. You know, you can always find me on LinkedIn if people want to chat a little bit more. Anybody out there who's looking to start a business for the first time, or anybody just wants to, you know, kind of shoot the shit. And I love brainstorming new ideas. So. Awesome, man. Where can people find you exactly? Uh, Yeah, you can catch me definitely on LinkedIn. So just Mark LaFleur, M-A-R-C, and then LaFleur, L-A-F-L-E-U-R on LinkedIn. And then if you're looking for some product, obviously truelocal.ca, T-R-U-L-O-C-A-L.ca. You know, I always say if you try one box, you'll probably get hooked. So, uh, you know, hit, hit hit us up. Amazing, man. With that being said, ladies and gentlemen, the hustle is what you can't control. So control your grind and control your life. I'm Alex. And I'm Owen. And that's Hustle of Everything Podcast. Peace. Peace out.